Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 28th, 2021. I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. The news just broke a few minutes ago that Facebook is changing its name to Meta. And according to the headline in the Washington Post, uh, the company, the biggest social media company, the dominant social media company that's been in the news so much recently, is now focusing on the virtual world. Um, I think it's an important moment, perhaps not so much in, in the history of Facebook, but in the history of social media and perhaps even free speech, that Facebook is moving away from social media because for various business, cultural, political reasons, it can't make a success um, of social media. It's so controversial. Um, we are talking today about free speech. Last week uh, was Free Speech Week, an annual nonpartisan celebration of freedom of speech and the press. So it's an appropriate subject. Um, uh, and it's a subject that's very much in the news by newsmakers. Uh, last week, the Washington Post publisher warned of threats to an independent press. Uh, many people are concerned. Um, last week, the City Club of Cleveland unveiled a new mural uh, to celebrate Free Speech Week celebrating dialogue, diversity, and democracy, perhaps the three Ds of um, three Ds of free press. Meanwhile, Facebook, as I said, has been in the news continually under assault by the government about uh, how it manifests and distributes information, particularly about the vaccine. Um, and it's not just Facebook, many other vehicles of social media are also uh, immersed in controversy. Uh, Twitter as well. Um, uh, one headline in the Washington Post suggests that Twitter only amplifies conservative politicians uh, because it enjoys mocking them. I'm not sure whether that's entirely true. Um, it's not just the left that, of course, is concerned with the free speech. The right is as well. A uh, piece this morning about how Ted Cruz is supporting a, a, a local figure at a school board for using the Nazi salute as a form of protest. Uh, the Wall Street Journal is also under assault uh, today, publishing a letter by ex-US uh, President Donald Trump, which pushed his so-called election lie. Uh, in the UK, Angela Rayner, the deputy head of the uh, British Labour Party um, is in court um, after a man pleaded guilty to malicious communications against her on social media. Uh, in the UK as well, a professor at University of Sussex has resigned after being critical of transgender community, transgender issues. Um, and finally, and, and there are so many headlines on this, I'm just skimming the surface, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology is in the news because it chose not to allow a, a lecturer who um, has political views which aren't particularly popular with most MIT students. Um, and 
that speech was banned. So free speech is very much in the news, and I'm thrilled today um, to be talking about free speech. I hope there's lots of free speech in this conversation and on this network. There's a new um, book out, Free Speech Handbook, a practical framework for understanding our free speech uh, protections. Um, it's a it's written by Ian Rosenberg, and it has the art of Mike Cavaliero. We've just had Ian on the show today. He's talking to me from the Lower East Side in New York City. Um, Ian, apologize for the rather long-winded introduction, but there's so well, much to the controversy about free speech these days. Um, is that why you've written this handbook? Uh, yes. Um, uh, you know, free speech uh, seems to be in the news um, from in increasing amounts from a whole uh, parade of people on both sides of the political spectrum. And what I kept, um, you know, interacting with um, people who, um, you know, were clamoring for their free speech rights, and, and usually they didn't know um, what their rights actually are. Uh, and so this book, Free Speech Handbook, is a, is a graphic novel designed to make as accessible as possible uh, our, what our free speech rights are today, how they impact the controversies of today, and how we can look to the past for lessons for the future. It's very much a book, for better or worse, about the United States. I had some examples from the UK, but you're focusing on the United States. And of course, the bedrock of free speech in this country is the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Ian, perhaps you might explain what exactly that First Amendment is. Well, certainly. Uh, so the First Amendment says that, uh, in part, that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the press. Now, Congress over the years, the last hundred years, has been interpreted to mean both the federal government, the state government, as well as state actors, which are usually public officials or public school employees. Um, and so when we're talking about free speech in America, we are very much talking about the prohibition of uh, the prohibition on government interference with individual speech. That is important to sort of focus on the government part of interference. Private actors are not subject um, to the First Amendment. And so uh, when we are talking about the you know sort of something being banned or something um, being a first amendment violation we really need to be talking about the government our free speech values might be implicated um, by private actors uh impact on speech rights but that would not be a constitutional issue and that's one of the themes of the book is trying to separate when there is a first amendment violation um, from when there is just perhaps uh something that implicates free speech issues in general do you think the First Amendment, though, um, is relevant today in a world where the government's increasingly dysfunctional and rival institutions, corporations, media actually rival the government for power? Uh, I absolutely do. Uh, and I think, you know, for a number of reasons. Um, first, you know, if, if the Trump administration uh, showed us anything, it's the idea that um, America is impervious to an autocratic leader trying to decide what is truth for the rest of uh, the country, um, we, we now know that is not the case. We know that the Trump administration in many different ways, um, not only in the way they demonized the press by calling it uh, the enemy of the people, but in many other efforts 
um, tried to uh, tell us what truth is and uh, could and to control the press uh, as much as uh, possible. Thankfully, they were blocked by the First Amendment in many different uh, regards. But also, I, I think that we need to think about free speech um, in all different platforms. So our free speech rights and connection um, to social media um, are, you know, uh, powerfully important today um, as they ever have been. And, and the future of free speech is certainly online. Um, and I, I'm happy to talk uh, later about, you know, what um, free speech rights people have regarding social media. Uh, the Supreme Court had one case about it uh, called Packingham, and that's the last chapter uh, of my book. So uh, I, I don't think free speech concerns are a thing of the past. Uh, to the contrary, uh, I think as this book shows in each chapter, beginning with the contemporary free speech question, we still have many free speech controversies today, despite um, you know how dysfunctional you think this government may be. You begin um, the book, uh, Ian, uh, in, um, in 2017, the, the, the Women's March, um, and you suggest that uh, one of the lessons of that Women's March in 2017 is that none of these issues are new in terms of free speech. You, in fact, uh, after the Women's March, in terms of this beautifully um, illustrated book, um, you, you go back to uh, 1913 to a woman called Molly Steimer, uh, suggesting that issues of free speech... Um, aren't just uh, locked in, in the, the early 21st century. They were equally relevant, if not more, at the beginning of the 20th century. Tell me the significance of Molly Steimer. So Molly Steimer is really a fascinating, uh, I think, unsung feminist hero. She was a, a Jewish uh, immigrant anarchist. Um, she's living on the Lower East Side, right where I'm speaking to you from today. And um, she became politicized by her very uh, hard life as a, a, a seamstress uh, working at, at, as a garment worker on the Lower East Side. And she uh, became dedicated to anarchism, started throwing out with some compatriots, started throwing out anti-World War I leaflets from tenement buildings and factory buildings on the Lower East Side, some in Yiddish, uh, the language of Eastern European Jews, and, and some in English. And, and what was so radical about these leaflets was that they were, you know, arguably advocating for illegal action. Um, they were opposing the war and opposing um, the draft um, during World War One. And Molly and her compatriots, uh, in in the beginning uh, around 1920, were convicted and sent to between 15 and 20 years in jail for essentially just criticizing the government. Now it was considered advocacy uh, of illegal action that violated the Espionage and Sedition Acts. Um, but her case goes up to the Supreme Court and Justice Holmes and, and the Supreme Court <laughs> affirms their convictions, um, says that it is OK um, to uh, be in jail for criticizing the government, which we would uh, not have that decision today. But what comes out of that decision is so important is Justice Holmes, joined by his friend Justice Brandeis, uh, creates a dissent that um, talks powerfully about how important it is to protect dissent and creates the idea of the marketplace of ideas. So this central metaphor that basically says the best test of truth is the power of an idea to get itself accepted in the marketplace, um, that that should be the model um, that governs our country's free speech protections. And it is today, just as, as, as recently as the Supreme Court's um, 
most uh, current uh, June term, uh, they uh, once again quoted positively referring to the marketplace of ideas in a student speech, uh, student online uh, speech case. So what Molly has to do with Madonna and the Women's March, when Madonna said at the Women's March that she thought a lot about blowing up the White House, is that today, whether it be Madonna or Black Lives Matter activists or, or people who are being perceived as advocating for illegal action, um, we know that those rights, uh, except in very narrow circumstances, um, when there is a, an imminent um, and likely harm of illegal action, that those type of radical notions um, are still protected. Um, and that is, uh, I, I think, the, the strength and beauty of our Constitution. Um, we, we begin modern free speech uh, law in America basically with Molly Steimer, who said that uh, when she was being deported from this country, that she hoped that the country would be uh, more free in the future. And, and because of her actions, we are much freer today. Yeah, and you illustrate the, the Molly Steimer um, story beautifully as, as the whole book. I mean, it's a remarkably... Um, remarkably beautifully illustrated book uh, done by the by uh, Mike Cavallero, the the artist. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Ian, it, does the Molly Steimer model work as well on the right as on the left? I mean, is it sh should we give the right for people to give Nazi salutes or, or give speeches at colleges uh, under the law, or, or or are those inappropriate? Uh, well, those are two different issues, but but um, let me let me sort of unpack them. And first, let me say that thank you um, for complimenting my co-creator, Mike Cavallero. It brilliantly uh, uh, brings to life both images from the past that uh, we no longer have records of, um, and and also sort of creates visual, uh, engaging uh, ways of framing ideas that are abstract, like the marketplace of ideas or, or the First Amendment itself. Um, but to your question about the politics of the First Amendment today, one of the things that I think is particularly fascinating uh, about free speech is that we have shifted from uh, a time in which free speech was primarily um, embraced by the left uh, as a way of protecting liberal causes, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, anti-war protesters during Vietnam, um, political um, comedians um, to uh, a time today when the conservative court that we have on the Supreme Court today um, is by and large um, equally embracing uh, of First Amendment protections in, in terms of free speech rights. And, and Justice Roberts, uh, certainly no liberal, uh, describes himself as one of the foremost champions uh, of the First Amendment and free speech issues. And um, well, I think he may uh, praise himself a little bit too much for how strong a free speech defender he is. Um, he definitely is firmly committed to free speech ideas. Um, one of the cases uh, that I talk about uh, in the book um, involves Nazi salutes. Um, it begins, well, it, it, it parallels the idea of, of hate speech and Nazi salutes. Um, we begin each chapter, that chapter in particular, with a contemporary issue, and that is the Nazis marching in Charlottesville uh, of recent uh, days. And um, then to answer sure, whether- sure. In terms of the, the, do people have under the, First Amendment, do people have the right to march as Nazis? Is Absolutely. That is very different than the European model. Um, and, and that is what this chapter explains, is that hate speech um, and you know, Nazi speech um, is absolutely um, protected um, under uh, our First Amendment free speech framework. Um, not only is Nazi speech protected, um, but equally uh, abhorrent speech, uh, such as um, 
the uh, Westboro Baptist Church, who used to protest outside of military funerals uh, because of their mistaken and horrific beliefs that uh, God was uh, punishing military soldiers because of America's permissiveness and their view toward gay rights. Um, and so we have a case there that um, a father who had uh, a protest take place outside of his son's military funeral brings an emotional distress case um, to try and sue the Westboro Baptist Church. There's a multi-million uh, dollar uh, verdict against the church, but it goes up to the Supreme Court. And Justice Roberts says that if the, there is a bedrock principle of the First Amendment, it is that we cannot stop nonviolent protest simply because we find the speaker or their message abhorrent. So hate speech is protected in this country, Nazi speech is protected in this country, and both the right and the left, um, uh, at least on the court, um, do believe that this is uh, the correct um, and uh, most necessary way of protecting everyone's speech. Uh, Ian, doesn't the marketplace of ideas argument articulated by Holmes or Brandeis, isn't it premised on the idea that if of the free market, essentially, if you give everybody license to say whatever they want, eventually um, the truth will win out. Eventually, uh, the bad ideas, the incorrect ideas, the dishonest ideas, the hateful ideas will go away. But doesn't social media disprove that? Aren't we living in a time where social media is actually amplifying lies? It's an important question. And uh, I, I begin in the book by talking about the free, uh, the marketplace of ideas to introduce the concept because you can't really have uh, a firm understanding of American free speech law without understanding it, even if you want to critique it. And yes, there is the idea that truth doesn't catch up with a lie. There's also the important um, equity critiques from critical race theorists and, and others um, that, you know, who is allowed into the market, that the market has so long disenfranchised or overtly excluded women and minorities, black people in particular, um, from participating in the market at all. But I, I think, and yes, you are absolutely right, it is an economic model. I like to think, I once had a student who actually um, told me that he thought um, that perhaps Holmes was using an economic model um, to describe why we have free speech, to make his radical notion of protecting anti-capitalist uh, anarchists uh, more palatable. But uh, regardless of the reasons for that model, I, I think there's a line that Holmes also has in that dissent, the Molly Steimer Abrams dissent, um, that's equally important to sort of the economic model idea. And that is, he says, uh, paraphrasing that this is the, that this idea of the marketplace of ideas is an experiment as all life is an experiment. And I think what he is saying there is that truth is less important, perhaps, than the process by which we get to truth. And just as with experiments, with medical experiments or scientific experiments, sometimes you need to get the wrong answer. You need to get um, negative test results. You need to find out what doesn't work um, in order to lead to a greater good. So I, I don't believe that the marketplace of ideas means that we will always um, get to truth. Um, through an open exchange of ideas. But I do think it means it's the best uh, option except for the alternative, uh, to paraphrase Winston Churchill. Uh, Ian, each of your chapters focuses on a particular case. Um, I can't go all over, over all of them, but I was particularly amused that uh, Samantha Bee's insult of Ivanka Trump uh, calling her the C-word 
um, is uh, is one of your cases in which she okay. has the right to do that. How does that relate to the government? Wasn't she doing that um, on television? Uh, yes. Um, and the one area um, in which the government is generally allowed to regulate uh, speech um, is that the government does allow um, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, the agency in charge uh, of communications, um, to regulate uh, indecent speech, uh, basically cursing on television. They cannot ban it, but they sort of regulate it out of the mainstream uh, broadcasting day. And I begin, uh, as you say, talking about uh, the Ivanka Trump, Samantha Bee controversy. Uh, and I say that the answer to uh, whether or not she has the right to say that goes back to another political comedian, George Carlin, uh, and his famous seven dirty words monologue, which led to the Pacific uh, case uh, in which the Supreme Court uh, ultimately said that there is no right um, to curse on broadcast television. Now, what's anomalous uh, about that decision, it says like, well, if you can't curse on broadcast television, why is Samantha Bee allowed? Because she's on cable. And, and that, I believe, is a, a now outdated distinction, which the court has refused um, to update or, or declined um, to update Justice Ginsburg um, at, uh, at one time. Was the only so, so Cutting through all the legal clutter, um, Ian, w which um, w which law do you uh, which law are you in in favor of? Is it the one regulating television or the one that is I, I think that's more, a terrible, uh, more open ended? Uh, no, I think it's a terrible decision to say that um, that certain words uh, can be uh, regulated away. Um, I, I do think that it is one of the all of the other uh, points in the book. Um, are, are things that we have a positive right uh, to do, uh, but there is no a positive right to curse on broadcast television. Um, I, I think Carlin's uh, monologue was a perfect example of, he wasn't using curse words just to be scandalous. He was using curse words to create um, uh, a, a dialogue about the hypocrisy of sort of conventional morality um, during that time period. And so I think that's a terrible decision, um, but we need to know what the law is before we can seek to change the law. Um, I think it's inconsistent with the rest of, of free speech law in America, um, but that is the way the law is today. And, and the so we should, be, we, we, we should be free to use the C word or the F word to describe anyone we don't like on any media. Is that what you're suggesting? No, I'm saying that the government shouldn't be the one deciding when or not um, that, that. But isn't that ultimately, but you keep on hiding behind this government thing. Uh, Facebook would allow us to say anything as long as it was legal because they can make money out of it. Uh, Facebook doesn't true. care what we say. Well, their only concern is that they get regulated or fined by the government. Well, I, I think there's two things there. One is the idea of, you know, who's to decide what we do and do not want to, you know, hear. So I actually think the government issue is not a, not a shield um, from tough uh, questions. I think it is the most important uh, question. Um, I, you know, I don't want the Trump administration, the former Trump administration, deciding what curse words they think I can hear. And perhaps conservatives don't want um, the Biden administration doing the same. Um, but, you know, part of the right to free speech is also a right to receive um, information. Justice Kagan talks about this. Um, in many later um, Supreme Court uh, free speech issues. And I want to be able to hear um, the words of, be it David Chappelle or um, 
Yeah, Chappelle is another example. I mean, he's so much in the news about um, about his mockery of, of trans people and of, of, of other uh, sexual political issues. So again, you're very much um, in the camp that you believe that someone like Chappelle should essentially be able to say whatever he likes because he's, as you you have a chapter on Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live, Hustler and the Power of Parody. And of course, Chappelle is... Uh, he may be a good or a bad parodyist, comedian, but he is one. Uh, indeed. Um, and while I personally uh, don't, uh, I haven't seen the special, but from what I've read about it, I don't agree with what he said. Um, but uh, again, um, you know, freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences. So while he has a right uh, to say what he wants um, in his specials, uh, I also believe very strongly in contributing to the marketplace of ideas by critiquing his position. Uh, and by others uh, perhaps calling for uh, Netflix to, you know, not keep paying him um, for such specials or, or to not promote it in such a, a, a significant way. So, you know, just because somebody has a right to say something, just because Nazis have a right to march, certainly doesn't mean I agree with that right. Do you think, right? Ian, that um, you, you, you give the example of putting pressure on Netflix and people at Netflix have walked out over the Chappelle thing? Do you think, leaving aside the law, do you think it's appropriate behavior to put pressure on Netflix to take off a show that you're offended by? Uh, I absolutely do. Um, I, I, you know, while the, now while, you're beginning to sound like a suburban conservative. Uh, I don't think so. Um, I don't think many superb, suburban conservatives are, um, are, are supporting criticism. Well, of, you're easily offended. I think that the thing about um, the, the debate at the moment is that we all have to accept that being offended is actually rather healthy and that, that yes. we don't um, and that we shouldn't use our offense to go after media companies or newspapers um, or individuals. That's that's, a, that's you know, yes, I, I do think being offended and, and hearing offensive speech. Another one of the cases I talk about is Cohen versus California, in which a man wore a jacket that says F the draft. It says the full word um, on the back of his jacket during the Vietnam era. Um, and, and the Supreme Court, you know, defends his right to offend, um, upholds his right to defend and says beautifully, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric the reason why we should be able to curse. But just because I'm in, in favor of allowing uh, offensive discourse into the air doesn't mean, again, freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences. So I'm perfectly comfortable both with people saying offensive things and with other people saying, you know what, that remark offends me. I don't want to support your movie, book, TV show network um, in, um, in perpetrating those ideas. And I think both things are true. Both elements are part of the mix of the modern uh, marketplace of ideas. Do you think your book is balanced? I mean, all, all the chapters you have, and, and I love this, what this woman did against Trump. I'm certainly no fan of Donald Trump. Uh, you have a chapter on the woman who gave Trump the finger. You have uh, a section on Kaepernick. You have the stuff about Samantha Bee's critique of Ivanka Trump. You don't have any. You have stuff on the Vietnam War. You begin on Steimer and the anarchist protest against U.S. involvement in the First World War and the support for the white Russians, all of which are really interesting. But there are no chapters which I think conservatives would be comfortable with. Or am I being unfair here? 
Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I'm fine with even if you're being unfair, but but well, I, I love being unfair. That's what my show's all about, of course. <laughs> but what I will say is, again, um, you know, the last two chapters of the book um, are talking about Supreme Court decisions from Justice Roberts uh, and Justice Kennedy, who were both um, again, Justice Roberts, a, a true. Uh, perhaps not arch conservative, but certainly a true Republican uh, conservative, um, and, and Justice Kennedy, uh, you know, a, a conservative moderate, perhaps by by today's uh, means. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that um, what we again are seeing in free speech law is that it has strange bedfellows. Um, that people want to embrace. Uh, free speech when it uh, jibes with their um, political point of view, um, and then they're much less uh, enthusiastic about supporting it when it doesn't. That's why I admire the ACLU model uh, of defending even uh, the people's rights who they otherwise uh, oppose. Um, and so I, I think what this book is trying to show is that um, over the course of time, um, you know, different people have tried to use um, free speech uh, to protect their rights. And often these are people who are considered um, radical and wrong and, and sometimes. We and they still are. I mean, the star, I, I mean, Steiner, uh, you know, 100 years later, she, of course, does have the right to protest and say whatever she wants. But what she was saying was even sounds even more absurd today, 100 years later than it was at the time. I'm curious. Well, I would strongly disagree that that Molly Steimer is sort of pro women's rights, um, you know, basically socialist, um, you know, anti anti sort of 1920s capitalism. Um, things were were radically wrong. Um, well, but, 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 but I mean, wasn't the point anyway? Whether this is another, this might be subject of another show. Her support for the Bolshevik Revolution. But anyway, Ian, yeah. let's go back to the the point from the Washington Post publisher, which we began with, um, which. This was a press release um, put out in in uh, with with the Free Speech Week. Do you agree uh, that there are threats to the independent press, daunting challenges? Do you think that's an exaggeration? No, uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I, I think we are. Uh, I think one of the you know things I, I most hope to convey um, with this book uh, is how vital uh, a free press is to maintaining our democracy how uh, Trump and, and, and other uh, people's view that uh, the media can lie and get away with it. It's just not true. That is not the basis of libel law. And I, I talk about the, the origin. Yeah, but Trump isn't in power anymore. I mean, going back to this threat, where's the real threat now? I don't see it. Well, well I think that the threat comes from the growing disbelief in mainstream um, uh, the mainstream press, and, and even just sort of mainstream um, believers in truth. Um, so I, I think that, you know, when we sort of no longer believe in um, the objectivity of the press, when we no longer believe in the objectivity uh, of scientists, um, I, I think that we are at a date when we are um, currently today, when the state legislatures are, are passing um, you know, increasingly uh, numbers of anti-protest laws. Um, mm. I think we are definitely at a turning point. Um, you know, George Orwell, um, I quote in the afterword of my book, says that, you know, no matter, he, he said at the end of World War II, that no matter what the law is, if people support free speech, then free speech will be protected. If people abandon free speech principles, then the laws themselves will have no effect. I'm paraphrasing here. And I think we are at a moment, um, a, a perilous moment in terms of um, belief um, in the objectivity of the press and, and uh, you know, sort of the objectivity of truth in general. 
And I think what, what we need to do is to look back um, at um, the history uh, of free speech in this country and to know that so often uh, free speech was only um, protected um, in a very close uh, turning point. Um, and so I think we are at one of those turning points in terms of popular uh, support, if not in terms of, uh, you know, radical legal uh, change from the Supreme Court at this time. So your conclusion is fivefold, beautifully drawn again by Cavallero. Protect dissent, defend the press, resist government speech restrictions, expand the marketplace of ideas, allow speakers to express messages how they choose. I wonder whether... Um, expanding the marketplace of ideas and protect and uh, and defending the press whether those are in contradiction because the press is a sort of establishment and expanding the marketplace of ideas gives everyone the opportunity to say whatever they want are all these five are they compatible that's interesting. You're the first person to have asked me that, but um, I, I absolutely think they're compatible. They're, they're perhaps not going down the same path, but I, I, I both believe in the power of the mainstream press um, and um, what Justice Kennedy talks about was sort of looking at uh, social media um, as, uh, as sort of the marketplace of ideas uh, or a town crier on steroids. Um, and I think both things are vital. I don't think that uh, a robust social media presence where people can express their uh, views um, and belief in that should mean that we don't have a press. I think one without the other is, is incredibly um, destabilizing. Um, but together, I, I believe they're, they're very democratizing. Well, robustness is uh, a good word, I think, to describe uh, Ian's new book, Free Speech Handbook, a practical framework for understanding our free speech protections. Maybe it's a robust framework, very compelling, <laughs> beautifully you. drawn by Cavallero and excellently written by Ian. Congratulations, Ian. Thank and you. Um, as you said, you are in the Lower East Side of New York City. I was just there at the weekend, delightful oh, yeah. place. Um, in addition to Free Speech Handbook, what else should people be reading? at a time where at least you believe uh, free speech is in crisis? Well, uh, I'll, I'll mention two free speech books uh, and one other uh, just for pleasure. Um, for free speech, um, uh, I would say I highly recommend um, Hate um, by Nadine Strawson. And the subtitle is Why We Should Protect It With Free Speech Rather Than Censorship. Uh, and she does a brilliant job uh, of comparing American and European models um, of hate speech regulation and why she believes, and I think persuasively argues, that the efforts um, to regulate hate speech have largely failed um, and often um, penalize the very uh, minority interests that they were initially designed to protect. Um, I would also, when we're talking about the dissolution uh, of belief and truth, uh, I highly recommend um, the pamphlet uh, on tyranny by Timothy Snyder. Mm. Um, like our graphic novel, um, nonfiction graphic novel, there's a new nonfiction graphic novel version um, uh, with art by Nora Krug, I believe is her name. Um, yeah, uh, Snyder's been on the show and he's, uh, he's again a compelling writer. Uh, in, in, indeed. Um, and then lastly, um, for fun, the, the best book I've read recently um, is Britt Bennett's uh, The Vanishing Half. Um, an incredible story about family, um, racial um, passing, um, and sort of the meaning of America. Plus, it's a page turner. It's, it's a brilliantly written and, and engaging book. Um, so while your people are waiting to get Free Speech Handbook, it comes out uh, on uh, November 30th. 
um, I highly recommend those other books in the meantime. Right, I think people are going to be waiting <laughs> eagerly and to pick that book up, Free Speech Handbook, out later next month. Um, congratulations again on the book. Thank keep you. protecting free speech. Keep offending people. We need guys like you, Ian. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.